0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ramesh Sairam, and I think I'm a stranger to most of you. Um, I'm a psychiatrist by profession. Um, I've been coming to Common Ground since 2006, I think. So although the title of... um, This evening's program says I'm a guest teacher. Uh, I'm neither a guest nor a teacher. As I said, I've been coming here for about nine years. And the only condition under which I agreed to give these talks with Mark was that um, this is a support group for me, and I will, you know, declare all the areas of my practice that I find challenges in, and hopefully it will resonate with you. And this has been a good opportunity for me to, you know, identify one or two areas and really go deep into that. So when I gave this talk about a month ago, I talked about um, excuses because that time of year I found that my brain, my mind was coming up with all kinds of excuses not to practice. Yes, ma'am. So um, what I was told is that due to the... I'm a psychiatrist, not an engineer, but I'm told that the way the roof curves there, that the sound doesn't carry as well. I do have a geriatric voice, so let me speak loudly. How is this? Is that okay? Okay. So, um, yeah, so, so what I, as I prepare for these talks, what I decided to do was look at areas of my practice where I find that I'm having some challenges, and use this opportunity to actually go deeper into it, and then if there are any lessons to be learned, share them with you. So in March, uh, it was the season of laziness, so it was sufficiently far enough from January that the resolutions didn't have any hold, and March gives, gave me a, a lot of reason for excuses. You know, it's the worst month of the year, uh, winter is still kind of hanging around, um, I'll start meditating when it's spring, In uh, all those excuses, And uh, when I looked into it, it was amazing that these were just more stories that my mind was creating, and I found a lot of benefit. And then once I sort of got over that period, um, I really wanted to commit myself to some kind of a marathon for the the rest of the year. Uh, And one of the areas that I want to focus on in my practice is my body. And it takes a long time. Um, So how do I sustain my practice? For the long run, and it also came around the same time where I was getting ready to um, prepare for a week-long retreat, and I'm going on next week. And it occurred to me, why am I? Why, why did I decide to go sit at a lakeside cabin, but then sit inside the cabin from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. and meditate, as opposed to go out and have fun? You know what? So what is it that? motivating me to do this as opposed to what 99% of the population would do if they take a week off in May, which is not sit and walk, sit and walk. So meaning, what is the inspiration for me to sit and meditate? I I believe in it, I want to do it, but somehow I felt like I wasn't in touch with the core, uh, the kind of inspiration, the intention. And around the same time, I also felt that You know, I was sitting almost every day meditating, um, but there was a kind of a routine. It became routine. It became almost ritualistic. 7.30, go sit down, sit, body scan, deep breathing, and then some loving-kindness raises, but the zing was missing. But I also remembered that over the last nine years, I've had these periods when something happens, I get this inspiration, gives me a nice boost, and then it seems to plateau. Back then, I would pass the plateau, I would stop meditating, I'd stop coming to Common Ground. Then, maybe two, three months later, something would happen, a dope slap, come back, talk to Mark, and then something else would kickstart my practice. Or it could be reading a book. So I realized that, at least for me, as a mere mortal, I needed these booster doses in between. And so I found that I was in that place now where I'm going on this retreat next week, I want to do it, but... I don't want it to be yet another week of doing the same thing over and over again. How do I uncover this layer of onion to get to the next level of stink? That is my mind. And so I was reminded that um, very early on when I started listening to Dharma talks and reading, I came across one of these these lists. Uh, And this one I found a great benefit from, and it's called the five spiritual faculties. Are you familiar with that? Okay. So, you know, it's one of the more uh, commonly discussed um, lists among the Buddhist lists. So these are faculties that are to be cultivated and have been shown to, um, you know, facilitate, energize practice. So there are five uh, components. That's why it's the five spiritual faculties. And they are translated into, uh, the English translations are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And they are often described as if um, it's a kind of a linear prog- linear progression. So you uh, you cultivate faith, then it it faith leads to right effort, effort makes mindfulness easier, mindfulness leads to concentration, and concentration leads to wisdom. But it's not a straight line because wisdom is that little nugget of information, that little nugget of insight that energizes the faith, and the trust, and the confidence, and then it feeds back. So actually, it's a linear thing that loops back into energizing itself. And there are some excellent talks on this uh, subject, on Dharma Seed. Early on, I found the talks by Steve Armstrong particularly helpful, just given his very simple, down-to-earth kind of presentation and common sense examples. And I found a talk by Mark on this subject. Um, I think he gave it at IMS last year. But if you just, in, this, you know, in the talk uh, subject line, if you look for five spiritual faculties, you'll find a number of good talks there. So, and, and then the, the other thing that struck me is that long haul is what it's going to take. If I am sincere about um, some kind of wisdom practice, I can't be half-assed about it. Um, can this, that phrase be bleeped? <laughs> well, it's going to be online, so it's permanent. Um, but it's, it's like trying to diet, trying to lose weight by watching your diet two days a week, or trying to put on muscle by exercising maybe once a month. It just doesn't cut it. So the same way I found that just sitting, even if I meditate an hour a day every day, The 10 hours of mindlessness, whether it's watching TV or driving recklessly or, you know, just submerged in the defilements, those 10 hours can easily nullify the dedicated hour-long work. So what I realized is that, at least for me, mindfulness practice is much less about sitting practice and more about what I do the rest of the day. So all the comments that I'll make pertain to what you do during the rest of the day, Um, In fact, that may be easier and more meaningful than just sitting for one hour properly and then just being mindless the rest of the day. So, um, faith. So that's the first of the spiritual faculties. And I plan to talk just about the first and the second one because for me, those are the foundations. You get those two taken care of, the others will follow automatically. And this was news to me because... When I started meditating, it was all about mindfulness, concentration. But I hadn't done the basic homework. I hadn't laid the foundations of sense of trust and, you know, directing my effort in the right direction. So, of course, you know, you keep banging your head against this mind that's just racing all over the place because I didn't have the grounded foundation. So the the Pali word for faith is sadha. It's from the Sanskrit word shraddha. And many teachers will tell you that this word faith sits, doesn't sit very well with them. It's, some teachers even refer to it as the F word of Buddhism. <laughs> because, you know, some of us come to Buddhism because we are rebelling against the belief, the dogma, the doctrinal aspects of other religions. So to be told that you come here and you have to have faith really makes some of us cringe. Um, some others with um, maybe a psychological bent, a little scientific bent, we hear that this is all experimental. You don't have to believe anything. There are some basic premises, and if you accept them, it's all about practice. So if you come from science, you hear about neuroplasticity, and you get going, or if you're from psychology, you hear that Buddha was the first great psychologist. Again, there's nothing about belief. So the word faith is problematic for some, and so many of the other words that I also resonate better with are things like trust, um, confidence, um, dedication, or sincerity. In like fact, my mother, when we were kids, would say, you know, you should study with Shraddham. And I don't think she meant study with faith. It was with study with dedication. There's a hard a quality to it. You bring a little something that makes you want to, you know, dive into whatever you're doing. And so it's more the kind of background aspects of this energy. It's, um, the other way I I, I found I can understand the sense of trust is um, having rules and regulations. You know, coming from India, it's really nice to drive on these roads when you know that stop sign means that people on the other three lanes will stop. (laughs) They do not in India. But they have their own rules that I don't understand because I never drove there. But that's what I meant. So there are some basic rules. Or if you want to start a business here, you know, you don't have to grease any palms. You don't have to offer any bribes. There are some rules and regulations. And if you follow, then, you know, you may succeed. It requires effort, but you can succeed. Same way here, you don't have to believe anything, but you may find that the law of karma, you know, resonates with you. You know, actions have you know, causes have... I'm muddled here. Actions have consequences. Or uh, the Four Noble Truths. You know, there is suffering. Now, all of you decided to sit here, listen to me, rather than enjoy the spring sunshine outside. But that is suffering. You know, so, so you can get... So there is suffering. There is a cause. Um, I'd like to think that you are attracted to the fabulous speech that you were expecting from me. So that's craving. And then there's a possibility of cessation... And then there's a path. So you don't have to believe it, but there is a sense of trust that, oh, it resonates with me. I've tried other things in life. They don't add up, whether it's hedonistic or spiritual, religious. So let me try this. So that's the sense of trust that I'm talking about. So that's what brought us to this practice in the first place. So this kind of trust is called inspired faith or inspired um, trust. And this is what you know, brought most of us here. Or it could be a friend that said, you know, you were going through a difficult time in life, and a friend said, hey, you know, I've been going to Common Ground. It's a great teacher there, Mark. You may want to check it out. So you had that faith in your friend, and that's why you showed up here. Or it could be a book or, you know, any of those sources of um, inspiration. For some, lately, this whole neuroplasticity stuff has been drawing people to this practice because now we have a scientific proof evidence that mindfulness does work so neurons that fire together wire together so you there is a certain situation you react in a certain way over and over again this reaction pattern is more likely to happen so if you can watch your tendency to react in a certain way not react and maybe change that into a more wholesome form of response then you're creating new forms of wiring. So if you're of a scientific bent, well, that's another source of inspiration. So uh, some teachers have called this the seed. So, you know, you planted the seed to go to the next step. But like any seed, if you don't water it, you don't provide proper nutrients and sunshine, well, that's all it'll be. You know, you can read all the books you want. And there. Are, I mean, I was in that phase for a while. I had a little library of Dharma books and didn't meditate for weeks, sometimes months, but I listened to a Dharma Seed talk every day, and suddenly felt holy about it. You know that's the con job, but you know, but you get past that. By the way, this is also my confessional, so. This. <laughs> so the next step in the faith process is the uh, what's called experiential faith. So that's when you have the inspiration, you get some ideas, and you start putting things into practice. And because we here don't believe in blind faith, we need the feedback. And the only way you get feedback is by doing something. And so whether it's coming here every day or, um, you know, you, you, you come here every day, you believe nothing has changed, but suddenly someone at work says, you know, six months ago, the same situation would have had you flipping your lid and now you took it so easily. Or your spouse tells you, you know, you would have been yelling at me six months ago. Now you seem more chilled out. So that's the kind of feedback which comes back to, hey, something does work here. Maybe I should keep going at it. So that's the kind of experiential faith. But then you want to push yourself. Never settle for, you know, sometimes after three, four years of practice, you have these few, and a few retreats. You get these. You see these milestones, and you can settle for a comfort zone. You become a good meditator. You're sitting down every day for half an hour, forty minutes, and weekends you do an hour, and then you get into a comfort zone. And Mark has always cautioned us about that: is that if you're really sincere about wisdom, understanding, and really getting past the superficial layers, you really want to push yourself. And there is, that brings in another aspect of trust, is that you have to trust someone like Mark, but then you also have to trust yourself to open yourself up to some of the darker corners. And I'll give you some personal examples. And so this was about two years ago uh, at the <clears throat> facilitator's meeting. Mark mentioned this, exactly this point, that you know we can get comfortable, especially after a few years, and you can think I'm a good meditator. So ask yourself, what are your... Dark corners, some of the edges that you you know uh, hesitate to tread beyond. So I decided to sign up to be uh, a co-facilitator for the teen group with uh, Shelly. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. I get I'm very comfortable with geriatrics, aging, death, dying, things like that. Teens freak me out. I mean, just absolutely. Yeah, I, I have no idea, but just they just freak me out. But the amazing thing is. <laughs> I've been doing this for almost a year now, more than a year. It's that you know a particular situation would come up in the teen group, and of course I'm almost 50 years old, I have an answer to the problem, but then I know how to bite my tongue. But it's amazing the, the perspective of the teenager. So one teen will raise a problem, and then I'll have two other teens coming up with solutions that would never have occurred to me in a million years. So that was the awareness that Ah, there are more ways of looking at a thing than just my 50-year-old perspective and life is so different from their perspective and many other things that happen so uh, i also signed up i'm part of a couple of book groups um dharma book book clubs and there are some cha- some days when we we discuss a certain chapter it's like the chapter that i read in the privacy of my home there's no resemblance to the chapter that we just discussed at the book club you know, there is a there are a couple of women there, a couple of older people, younger people, and the, the the kind of zing for me here is how little I know. And so that's what I was settling in for is that I can read only from my psychological framework, but if I don't allow myself to open up to others and be receptive, I'm missing out on a whole lot of things in life. And in a personal life as well, around the same time, um, the, the opportunity to came up for me to you know to be the medical director of the department, and my instinct was no. And uh, When I asked myself, I came up with all kinds of objective responses. You know the health system is a mess it 's a transition. you know working in mental health is a thankless job. But my wife asked me the question at that time is "What are you afraid of?" And that for the first time, I turned my attention inwards as opposed to all the problems out there that were the reason why I didn't want to do the work. And I realized that it was fear. That's all it was. Well, I'm still afraid, but it's fear. And if I'm going to be avoiding things like this out of fear, then, again, I'm not aware of that's a reactive pattern over and over again. And this, you know, signing up for this talk, it's not fun. Trust me. I mean, it's, it's all my neurotic, you know, energies just get concentrated in the week before. And and the peak is during the guided meditation. You know, I know none of you is listening to me. My voice sounds tinny. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're listening or not. It's all the stories that are going on here. But compared to my first Dharma talk, you know, practice meeting talk last year, you know, today I found I could actually listen to what I was saying. And towards the end, I felt completely settled. So maybe I'm making some progress. Thank you. So my point is that that this aspect of trust, what I discovered is I have to have people I trust. I have to have messages that I trust. But finally, I have to trust myself to be able to take the next step. And that's the vulnerability. And so that, personally, I'm at a point where I believe that unless I'm testing myself every 6 to 12 months, then I can get into a static, comfortable zone. And I don't think wisdom is to be found in uh, safe closets. Okay, so um, so find some connections. Um, the other thing I've done with a couple of friends here is to form this kind of dharma buddy kind of connections. Um, just amazing. Uh, it's are the friends you open up. There is a kind of trusting relationship, but there are also boundaries. And so it's I, I may share things with them that I won't with my wife and vice versa. Again, don't tell my wife, and this needs to be bleeped out as well. <laughs> I have no secrets with my wife. <laughs> but uh, So I, I, I'm just sharing some of the things that worked for me, but uh, the kind of inspirational aspect of this talk, I hope, is you start looking at your practice, your circumstances, and see where you can get some of this kind of inspiration to take the next step. Who can push your buttons in a trusting way? Uh, who can then ask you know are you sure you 're not settling in so this should this energy should then lead to the next step, which is virya, which is the Pali word for effort again effort is a very narrow and limited translation of this word um, vir in Hindi means bravery, so that has one connotation: virile is in you know, a distantly related to the same virya, and the men know what that means um but there are The other connotations are um, energy, exertion, vigor, diligence, perseveration, and probably the true meaning of this whole skillful effort is the totality of all this. And so you can make effort, but if it's not sustained, it's a wasted effort. Or you can make effort uh, with a sense of commitment that has a different Energizing effect, as opposed to kind of the gritted teeth. I'm going to sustain the effort, but I'm going to keep banging my head against the wall. Um, that also has a different effect. So you you be aware of all the different aspects of your activities. Again, I'll confine myself to the kind of efforts that help us uh, sustain our practice. It's the kind of what's called the balanced effort. You know, the example that often is cited of the Buddha. Um, talking about, you know, giving advice to a, a lute player or a guitar player. You know, if the strings are too taut, then it's too tenny, and if the strings are too lax, then you don't get a sound. So that's that dichotomous nature is present in all aspects of our life, but especially practice. Should I focus on concentration, but then you get to be too tight and narrow, and then you don't miss miss the big picture? Or should I pull back and... Look at the big, broad awareness, in which case I give my mind freedom to just wander everywhere and there's no concentration. So what do I do? And many of us who, you know, remember the early years of our practice, this drove us nuts and often caused us to stop practicing for a while. Because concentration practice without awareness makes it very tight. And concentration doesn't always come easy to many of us. And then if you just pull back and say, I'm just going to be broadly aware, then your mind is everywhere. The thing that we, um, most of us who have jobs and professions, are very good at is linear goal-directed effort. So everything is reaching out there. It's doing, it's target, it's achievements, it's focus. But so much of contemplation practice, wisdom practice, is actually unlearning. It's actually pulling back and not doing. So the example that really uh, resonated well with me was um, I don't know where I came across this, but this a piano teacher was explaining that for the first, sometimes a year, but definitely first few months, when this teacher is teaching a kid to play the piano, her entire job is to train this kid's body to relax muscle by muscle, muscle by muscle, until the only muscles that are working are the fingers. And it resonated with me so well because there's so much tension that I carry. And... Some of you, I don't know if you've been to my pain workshop, I give this example of, you know, if I have a difficult conversation um, on the geriatric unit, and, I, you know, I talk about dementias and end-of-life issues, and sometimes it can be a very difficult conversation. And my social worker, who sits next to me, pointed out all these mannerisms that I go through, you know, that just showed the tension in my body arising from this difficult conversation I'm, I'm going to have. But as I reflected on it, none of that is necessary. I don't have to be sitting with my shoulders hunched. I don't have to be leaning forward. I don't have to have my neck jutting. I don't have to do all these other things. And also the pitch of my voice goes up. So in a systematic way, as I started subtracting them, I found that apparently you can lean back in your chair and have a conversation. And I also then do drop my shoulders. I also noticed that I can convey passion without... Having a high-pitched, tiny voice, and so, in the, early on, I would do that as I'm talk, as I was talking. But then I realized that if I just prepared myself for just a minute before, it actually had much better dividends, and I had the same content of the conversation, probably more effectively. So, anytime you're doing any kind of practice, whether it's sitting, walking. Or, you're doing anything mindfully, be aware of some of the deep-seated habit patterns. And so one effort that I'm trying to undo is my morning habit during breakfast of having the TV on for the weather, uh, morning edition on NPR, a little tablet in case I hear something that I need to, you know, check on Google, and then my book to read while I'm having my breakfast mindfully. Okay? So... (laughs) So the way I did it was, okay, the the weather comes in at 15 minutes past the hour. So I come down 15 minutes past the hour, listen to the weather, TV is off. Then I decided either NPR or book, and I decided on the book. But even then, for the, every time I let go of one of these, what I was aware of was the tension. It's just... And I can think, oh, I'm missing something. These are all stories, but it doesn't matter whether I'm missing something or not, because I am missing something. I'm missing a lot of things. But can I live with that? Of course I can. But my mind didn't know that. But I cannot not do anything and just have breakfast. But that's the effort of undoing. So, so it's not just about sitting or walking. Um, I'm assuming I'm not the only one that's struggling with all this. Please nod if you have some shared experiences. Thank you. So uh, when you listen to talks on um, wise effort, uh, skillful effort, there is this um, teaching called the Four Great Endeavors. Have you heard of that? So, so again, it's a whole talk, probably a whole series by itself. So I'll give you the four titles and then um, and just the examples that came to me about are using them, you know, using some of those areas to sustain your practice. So the first one is, again, these are efforts, four great efforts. So one is make the effort to prevent the arising of unwholesome states. So easily said, than done. But this to me is the foundation because if I am starting my day with, visual, auditory, tactile, and mouth, gustatory sensation, all at the same time, I cannot be mindful of anything. But I'm starting the day with this mindless, completely unrestrained sensory overload. So it's the sensory restraint. So I, I can't do that all day, but if I can do that a few times in the day, I'm still better off than doing 10 hours of totally unrestrained sensory overload. I, I've almost stopped listening to the radio on my drives now. Is that, you know, there is something I, I think I can catch up with the news some other way. NPR on this half an hour drive, if I miss that, is not catastrophic. But it did feel because it was an automatic habit. You get in and you turn it on, and so that's fine. And then so and then again, again, just to so I stay on time. I don't want to give too many examples, but this is the point here is. To look at areas of your life where you slipped into kind of routine habits and rituals where you are mindless and the the rewards are very pretty quick because it doesn't take much effort for you to undo these habits so so sila and um, sense restraint are the two kind of examples that folks give, and so um one um Every time, I live in St. Paul, and this is f- true for the last six years. Every time I drive back 94, I, every fiber of my being wants to take the Cretan Vendelia exit and go to Izzy's ice cream. <laughs> it is. I mean, I've, I've listened to Mark's talk here on Sense Restraint and taken that exit. To <laughs> in psychology, it's called um, a moral licensing. You know, I listen to the talk on Sense Restraint. I'm morally holy, so now I deserve the reward of an ice cream. And so it's an effort. Again, it's, maybe it's silly for me, but it's a problem. It was a problem. It still is. So look for things like that. So it's, it's a it's an great endeavor, but you can look for small areas of your life where you do these automatic reactions, often in response as an evidence of lack of sense restraint. Don't decide to give up Izzy's forever. That would be a really unskillful effort. But... <laughs> i can just keep going past over and over again and that can take care of itself and then pick one area of your life I'm, I'm assuming you're all like me drowning in sensory overload so pick some easy areas and work on them and then as you get that sense of feedback oh i achieved it use that as a as a kind of a inspirational feedback to get back into it but It's not about not going to Izzy. It's watching this tension. It's watching what happens in my body as I go past that exit. Because therein lies the wisdom. The wisdom is not in not going to Izzy's. It's that, what was it about that exit that causes me to want to turn this way so quickly? By the way, when I'm having the disease, it's awful. Because I'm snuffing it down because I'm feeling guilty. I'm not even enjoying that ice cream because... I shouldn't be having that ice cream. So either I have the ice cream and enjoy it, or be wisely avoiding the ice cream. The second great effort is the other one. So the first one is prevent the arising of unwholesome states. The second one is abandon the, um, try to abandon the unwholesome states that have arisen already. And this is essentially how do you deal with hindrances. So the five hindrances you may be familiar with, Craving, aversion, um, sloth and torpor, uh, restlessness and doubt. And I'll give you an example. My, what I learned over the last year, I've been plagued by doubt. And this doubt is not about the, the teachings, the dharma. I completely believe in them, not in a blind faith, but because of the scientific evidence. I mean, the, the, the amount of really good quality scientific evidence that supports the benefit of mindfulness is just amazing just in the last five years. Um, so I believe in that. But it's the this is where excuses came. It's my analytical, smart, psychologically trained mind can, you know, surreptitiously slink in through the back door, and I can start analyzing about something without sitting down and meditating or staying with the thing. So because I'm used to doing this for 20 years, it becomes like a habit. It not becomes like a habit. It is a habit. But before I know it, I've been... Thinking about it, pulling up some websites, and, you know, I need to check this, consulting. It's almost like I'm getting ready to write a little thesis. I feel all useful, but I just avoided sitting for another, you know, few days. And so it's doubt, it's not even, doesn't even show up as doubt, as in I'm not sure. This is masquerading as you doing good things. You don't have to sit and meditate or watch what you're doing, so long as you can analyze your way through it. And I bought into it for a while. But that's the fun part of meditation is you realize how little you know. And then the challenge is, what, what else do I not know? What else do I not know? And that was the kind of transformation for me about three, four years ago is I found energy and inspiration in how little I know. And I started with my body and then it's, my brain is, of course. There's nothing much to know there, so probably I can keep on digging. And this is the part, so doubt can also present as restlessness. And so, if, you, if you're if you trying to figure something out, and as you know, if you read enough of, about Vipassana, none of this can be figured out. You experience it, you create the right conditions, and then insight arises. But, you know, the doubt is a way of, you know, sabotaging the process or... Restlessness is the other way around where your mind is just kind of constantly wandering and then you give up. So either you give up because you have doubt about it or you give up because I can't do it. My mind is just all over the place. I knew I couldn't do it. You know, Hagen Das is so much more comforting. I it has a calming effect on my mind. I can really concentrate. So, And the third, so the first two efforts are about unwholesome things. Prevent the arising of unwholesome states and then... Letting go of some of the unwholesome states. The third one is to um, to actually make an effort to cultivate some of the wholesome states. And the classic example is to practice some of the Brahma Viharas or the Paramis. So the Brahma Viharas are the uh, the kind of divine abodes. So loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Um, I won't talk about them much just because I have zero experience. I'm a guy. I like black and white, touchy, feely, soft stuff. Not yet. Um, but paramis, you know, there are ten paramis. Don't ask me to name them, but you can find them on, online. But the one that I've really uh, been working on for a while uh, is patience. And there is a lot to be learned there. And so, you know, read up about the paramis. There are some excellent talks and books about them. And then find one that you want to cultivate. And I'd say give yourself a good ear. They're not easy because you're trying to undo long-term habits. And then the last of the four endeavors is to maintain wholesome states that are that are already present. This is where we're all so good at, this is what we're so good at not doing. You know, especially those of us who come to this kind of practice are fabulous at beating ourselves up. You know, that's why this the these meditation, uh, guided meditations, I really urge people, if you have some sense of ease and comfort in your body, go there, stay there. There is nothing about your breath that is so special that, you, if, that you'll attain nirvana only by focusing on the breath. You attain nirvana, whatever that is, by being present with what's going on. So you have these busy lives, you're praying for some moments of ease and peace, and then you take the trouble to come here, and if you do have some peace and comfort, what a shame if we miss that in the pursuit of something else. And so I learned that from Shinzen Yang, because when I started you know, meditating uh, early on, and all I kept hearing was the breath. And Nothing is more tedious than my breath. I'm sure your breaths are all very exciting, but mine is very <laughs> tedious. And so it's, it felt tight, it felt uncomfortable, and but that's what I kept reading and hearing until Zen young, who's a Vipassana teacher out northeast, so he's the one that pointed out, you know, do your body scan kind of relaxation, and if you find that it's a nice feeling, give your mind something nice to focus on. It doesn't matter what you focus on. It's easier to stay with something that's pleasant than something that's neutral or painful. Um, so so that's one aspect of it, so that's the kind of physical ease and comfort, which is a little easier But then the other parts, which are, there's so many good things that are going on. A spring day. I mean, we've been waiting for a day like this for how long? And did we truly enjoy that day? Or were we dashing all over the place? Even on your way here, did you soak in some of that? I'm not talking about the physical sensations. The sense of ease that comes on a beautiful day like this. The sense of gratitude for life as it is right now. We're not in Nepal, we're not in Syria, we're not even in some you know, some awful places even in America. But it's gone by, it's gone by. And I gave the talk on contentment last year after one particularly embarrassing event like this. Do you remember the winter of 2013 to 14? You know, awful. And I ride a scooter um, um, most of the time in, in, when the weather is warm. So, and so I was praying for scooter weather. And so I was coming to Common Ground for one of these practice meetings. It's like June, 72 degrees, gentle breeze. It was always well in the world. And I was at a traffic intersection just waiting for the traffic line to turn green. And I'm not a macho guy. I drive a scooter. You know, it's not a motorcycle. You know, it's a wussy little scooter. And every fiber of my being was in that bad habit. When there's a traffic light, I'm a guy. When I show up there, it had better turn green. If not, <laughs> all the outrages of the world have just been inflicted on me. And so that was, kind of a dope slab moment. And so Mark had all asked me to give the talk. So I said, oh, let me find out how many other areas of my life am I missing. I'm not going to go that far into confession, but trust me, <laughs> the count is still going. So that's a kind of quick summary of the kind of main points, Uh, so the outline. So in summary, the first thing is uh, have a sense of are you in it for the long haul, okay? So if you're not, I would say if you have some time on an evening like this, don't force yourself to sit down, go take a walk, do something fun, okay? But if you feel like, yeah, I know I'm sincere, then don't, See meditation just as sitting and walking or retreats. the whole life is practice. Sitting is just one part of it. The advantage of sitting is that it 's concentrated and there's an energizing quality to it there 's definitely benefit to it, but between sitting and the kind of meditative aspects of daily life, I would start with daily life because that makes sitting easier but if you 're just sitting and not doing the rest, at least from my experience it's you know you 're really missing out on a lot. The second is. See what brought you here in the first place, you know, way back, whenever you started meditating uh, or just, you know, found contemplative practice. And, and then look back over the last few years as to those points in your, in your practice course where you found those inspirations. And then see your present state. Is there something stale? Is there something routine, mundane? And what can you do to find that little trust that faith the confidence the inspiration um, but again don't stop that that's just the seed so you need to go to find your edge so push yourself the next step and then as you find the energy then see how you can channel that energy um, into some, something more wholesome Again, don't make it into a big production as I said for me the morning breakfast it's going to take a few months before I get that sorted out. And then I'll start looking. I'm sure I'll find plenty of you know, aspects of my life where um, I'm pretty mindless. Um, and then the other part is that we get good at it. This is the good news. You know, how many, things, how many activities in your life that you can think of when you first started doing it, it required every effort of your being. Starting with bicycling, swimming, driving, playing musical instruments, And then you do it, you get better at it, which then inspires, energizes your practice, so you do it more. It's the same thing here. But somehow we have narrowed down meditation into this sterile sitting, walking. Maybe I did it, maybe you don't. But it just became meditation. When you look up anywhere, it's about sitting like this. No. And many of us with back pain, neck pains, can't sit. So there are many other ways in which you can deal with it. And then for my personal... (laughs) experience another confession beware of your excuses just don't buy into anything your mind says about you know today you can get by without meditating and uh, this is this was one of those kind of cardinal moments for me so i would have a you know i would have had a bad day you know a stressful day at work so i'm you know my 7 o'clock time comes i need to meditate and then the stories in my mind are you know i have one life to live if I don't sit down, sit, meditate today, what's the big deal? You know, I, I need to be compassionate. I need to relax, catch some TV program, have some ice cream, relax, go to bed early. Okay, that, that makes sense. But then on a good day, on a Saturday, I had a good, nice weekend. I'm rested and relaxed. The mind came up with this story of, you know, this is a very selfish thing to do. There's so much suffering in the world, and you, all you're concerned about is your own, you know, nirvana. I think you should look at volunteering opportunities. There's mindfulness in action. You know, go look up. So I could spend the next half an hour, 45 minutes, checking out volunteering opportunities, doing everything but meditating, achieving nothing, and then just going to bed. So it's the two can't be true. My mind can't be, you know, my mind can't say that you need to be kind to yourself when it's convenient and then also, well, you don't, you know, you don't, you're not worthy of this. You need to go help other people. So either way, I'm doing not, essentially it's an avoidance behavior. So look for excuses, but it, that's just a label, but go down to the energy behind that. And you will, there's an amazing amount of wisdom to be found. You could just be standing in front of your cushion and you can feel the tension of, you know, I should sit, but I don't want to sit. Okay, you don't want to sit, but you can still be present with what's going on here. Why does this stupid, not stupid, this kind of tension between I need to do, I shouldn't have to do. So, I'll end with this quote from the Buddha. There are only two mistakes one can make along the road to truth, not starting and not going all the way. I think the fact that you're here suggests that you started. So then the question is, are you going to go all the way? So I'll stop here, and we have eight, nine minutes for questions. By the way, Mark told me that I have to keep you here till nine. So either we have questions and dialogues, or we can have a staring contest. So. I would like to suggest that we have a moment of silence for people in... Um... but to, in, in uh, for the suffering that's going on there. Can we do it towards the end? As we, yeah? Okay. So the gentleman suggested that we have a moment of silence towards the end but the suffering. I was curious about the particularities of your own meditative practice, whether you did it in the morning or whether you did it in the evening or whether you did it at both times. And how often, how long you do it? When you do it, and do you do any just sort of uh, checking in with yourself during the day that would be just a a moment where you might pause? So I'm curious about. You've been talking about the obstacles to the practice. So I was. I'm curious about the particularities of your practice. Right. So excuse me, I have to stand. I have a chronic back pain, so. And that kind of, um, hopefully I can give you, answer your question that same way. So his question was, you know, do I have a certain pattern to my practice, certain routine, regularity? I used to, and that's when I realized that I had stagnated. And so either I was doing it and as a routine, I must do it, because someday something will click, or I would just not meditate for weeks. And so it just didn't add up. But things changed about two, three years ago, and so right now, I personally find a lot of value to having some, really making some effort to have mindfulness moments through the day. And so I'll give you examples of what I do. So in the morning, I wake up with a, get a fair amount of tension in the right side of my back. So I do what's called a, a, a technique from, have you heard of Alexander Technique? Yeah, so they have an exercise called constructive rest. So that's what I do every morning. And so, you know, it's, it's very meditative. It's essentially contemplating the body, and, and that's where I got this whole phrase about gravity. And so I just let gravity support me every through every part of my body, and the, that's been the best solution for me to, for this kind of tension to relax, especially that particular constructive rest. I used to go, um, I have a traction table, and never worked. So that's one example of something I started doing. Um, But the other examples I'd give would be, like before a difficult conversation. And so in the past it used to be on the geriatric unit, now as a medical director I have to have difficult conversations with my colleagues, some administrators, you know, just administrative hassles, and it just gets your goat. And so what I'm more aware of is how much fear and insecurity lies behind my tension. So just because this particular conversation is going to be difficult, but that's what it is. I know my body doesn't have to be tight all over because the person I'm having this conversation with can feel that. The pitch of my voice gets up. I'm leaning forward and can come across as being overtly forward and intrusive. So I now drop my shoulders. I maybe spend a minute or two taking deep breaths, depending on how bad the conversation is going to be, Um, or... I come to an elevator, press the button, until three, four years ago, I was like any other person, <laughs> pacing back and forth, as if that was my impatience, as if that energy would you know, cause the elevator to come up. So then I learned from Alexander Technique about gravity, and so it became a great moment for mindfulness. So I press the button, I drop my shoulders, and I do slow diaphragmatic breathing and then I see somebody else come and do that, I'm so cool. See, you know, they're so mindless. I'm the cool, mindful guy, <laughs> half a halo behind. But, but that was also a learning lesson about the arrogance. You know, I forgot that just a year earlier, two years earlier, I was just like them. But then, just within the last year, I noticed that I would press the button, I'd do all this, and then there was this tension of expectation I still wanted the elevator to come up. But that's the layers of awareness. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. So when I just when I had thought that I had solved this problem of impatience, I find this leaning. I find tightness here. I find tightness in my quads. I never paid attention to my quads. It was always here. And then you notice that, that impatience. And it can go on, but there are so many examples. But then the core of my practice is, yes, I do that. 15 minutes, Alexander constructed rest in the morning. I come home in the evening, and I do a 20-minute um, body you know, um, a stretching routine. Again, I made the mistake a few years ago. I was watching, this is 2012 election cycle, watching something on TV, and I'm doing my trapezius stretch. Somebody said something offensive on TV, and I ended up tearing a little bit of the muscle. See, so that's how instinctive it is. I wasn't even reacting. They said it, and my gut just tightens up, and I'm stretching, and boom. Well, lesson learned. No more TV. And, but the thing is, how mindless an activity was that? Again, I'm talking about what a pleasant sensation relaxation is. It was after that that I realized that this is the best meditation. It's mindfulness of the body. So I take my time, 20, 25 minutes, do a full stretch, but then I enjoy the pleasurable experience of a nice stretch. That's meditation. And then depending on the day after dinner, I either walk, depending on whether I have pain or if I have you know, a lot of things going on in my mind, or I sit for half an hour, 40 minutes, any time between 7.30 and 9, thirty, nine. Most days, I'm human. I cheat. One more question, comment? So let's sit in silence for a couple of minutes and send out whatever compassion, goodwill we can to all the suffering in the world. Well, thank you for sharing this evening with me. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.